I would have had that in my underwriting and then I would have been like, all right, well now these are their turn. I'm going to get in this property instead of being surprised by it. So on the smaller end, it's more of a surprise. On the bigger end, you might have to actually do a capital call, which you don't want to do. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month. Then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff and... We got Follow Along Friday. We got Theo Hicks with us as he usually is, and we're going to dive right into it. What do we got, Theo? This is going to be a continuation of last week's episode where we went over five common questions that are asked by passive investors before committing to investing with your company. And this week's going to be part two. We've got five more common questions, and so I'm going to ask them. Joe's going to answer, then we're going to have a little conversation about each one about how to approach it and what the investor is implying when they're asking that question and things like that. So make sure you guys check out that first episode, how to answer the most common questions from past investors, part one for the first five questions. And then you can basically create a running list of the questions they can ask. All of these are actually on our past investor site, besteverpassinvestor.com. But we're going to go in a little bit more detail here just because you can only do so much in a couple of paragraphs. Ready to jump into these questions, Joe? Absolutely. And the episode that we did part one on was last Friday. Mm -hmm. So it's seven days ago, whatever the episode number is today, just subtract seven and you'll find that other episode. Perfect. So the first question, Joe, is what happens if the project I'm investing in fails? Well, then it depends on what degree of failure the investment actually fails at. Mm-hmm. If it is Armageddon and the project loses all of your money, plus we do a capital call and you invested in that and we lost more money, then you'll lose both your initial investment plus your additional investment. Now, that's worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important to note the structure of the agreement that you'll be completing so that you know the pecking order in which the funds will be distributed. If the project takes a downturn, then your preferred return, that is 8%, if we're not able to pay that, that will accrue until the next pay period or distribution period, which we do monthly, some groups do quarterly, annually, whatever. We do monthly. So it would accrue until the next month and it would continue to accrue until the sale of the property if we're not able to catch up through the cash flow. And so at the sale of the property, because you have 8% preferred return, you must receive 8% on your investment plus your investment dollars back and everything that's accrued before the general partnership receives any profits from the sale. Now, if there are no profits from the sale, and there is no money to be distributed, then you won't receive any of that because there's no money. 
but because of the preferred return, you are ahead of the general partnership, not only to get an 8% annualized return, but also to receive your investment dollars back before the GP, the general partners, receive any profits. And that's usually how it's structured is the loan, and then above that's the investors, and then above that is you, the syndicator? Well, you're saying above that, but I think of it as below that. So first is the debt or the expenses for the property, Mm -hmm. because we got to pay our bills first off. Second would be additional capital contributions that were made. And then third would be the investor preferred return and their investment dollars. And then fourth or fifth, depending on how you look at it, is the general partnership share. Okay. Yeah. Just because I know we talk about a lot of you, when you're talking to investors, you want to try to communicate alignment of interests. And that's just one example of alignment of interest that they get paid before you get paid. So the syndicator wants to meet the return projections and distribute those to their investors. If not, then they don't get anything at all. And to clarify, when you say they don't get anything at all, there's an acquisition fee that the general partnership receives at closing. So the general partnership does get paid some at closing. And you can look at it in any number of ways how you want to look at it. It's reimbursement for their time. It's compensation to put the deal together, et cetera, whatever, however you look at it. But they do get paid at closing, assuming there's an acquisition fee. However, after closing, then they don't receive any funds. And again, it depends on how the operating agreement structured. I'm just talking about our deals because mm-hmm. other people could structure it differently. But for our deals, we won't receive compensation unless we've been paying out the preferred return to our investors. And we actually put that in our legal documents that we won't receive the asset management fee unless the investors are on track to receive their preferred return. And that's not typical to put in the legal documents. It came from one of my early, early on investors who's invested with us from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, why should you receive an asset management fee if something happens and you're not paying our preferred return, or he said my preferred return. And I said, oh, well, we wouldn't do that. He's like, well, why don't you put that in writing? Like, all right, cool. We'll put it in writing. And we talked internally and among my team and the consensus was it's not typical to put in legal document in our industry, but we did anyway, because it's not like we would take an asset management fee if we're not returning the preferred return. That's interesting because I was reading an investment offering the other day where the syndicators, I think it was one of their first deals. And so they weren't asking for asset management fee at all. And you can kind of get the same point across by putting it in a position above or below, however the terminology is, the preferred return than you would just not having it at all. Because their entire point is like, they don't want you collecting money unless they get their money. And so instead of just not collecting it at all, just say, well, I won't collect it until I pay you back instead. Put it in second position. Yeah. Yep. I think we had that question pretty well. And we actually had another question um, on this list. One other thing to mention, it also makes sense for beginning syndicators not to have an asset management fee or not to need it. I still would include it just to make sure that you're setting the expectations with your investors on how your fee structure will be. But as beginners or starting out, you won't have as many team members 
helping you with the property. Most likely it's going to be you and whoever else who's putting the deal together. Therefore, I don't think you'd have hired outside employees just for that project to do asset management. Whereas once you get to have a larger portfolio, you must, for the sake of the projects, you must have new employees come on and help you out. Hmm. Otherwise, your projects will slump due to lack of proper oversight. Yeah, and I think that'd be a good thing to talk about in a future episode, kind of when you make that transition and what you should do when you're hiring someone. So I'll remember to make that a topic of a future episode. Another question we had on our list was, what happens if you don't make the projected cash flow? And we've already kind of answered that it accrues. It's going to be written. Be, the process will be written in the agreement, correct? Yeah. Whatever the process you is. Okay. We've already answered what happens if you can't make predicted cash flow. Another common question that might be asked is what types of reserves are typically established with each property in order to shield investors from any potential capital calls? So you've mentioned the capital calls a few times, specifically in the worst case scenario. So the question is kind of asking what types of things you put in place in order to mitigate the risk or mitigate the chances of that actually happening. You help with our underwriting. What do you think? So number one, you want to have an operating account fund up front. So you want to have a chunk of money in the beginning for paying things like upfront taxes or insurance, but also for the unexpected. If your capital expenditure budget is $3,000 per unit, and then you get in there and it ends up being $5,000 per unit, where are you going to get that extra $2,000 from? Or if you, for some reason, didn't do adequate due diligence and you realize that half the boilers are broke, you need to buy a bunch of new boilers. Where's that money going to come from? And so you need to essentially, not necessarily expect that to happen, but have the funds for the just in case. So that would be anywhere between 10 to 15% of your actual renovation budget is what we typically budget for that. So that's up front. But then also you want to have an ongoing fund because if you have to use all that stuff up front, you're still stuck with something else potentially happening later on in the property. So it's supposed to standard in the industry is between $250 and $300 per unit per year. So you figure out how many units there are and then multiply that by 250 to 300. And that's how much you should be saving every single year into your operating account fund. So those are the two main ways that syndicators, when we're underwriting a deal, the extra funds you want to account for. So the operating account funding will be an upfront cost. So you have to raise additional capital for that. And then the ongoing 250 to $300, that's something that's going to be looked at as an operating expense. So it'll be looked at as the same way as maintenance and repair costs. So if you want to make sure when you're underwriting a deal, you are accounting for that. And when I've been underwriting deals and looking at T12s is I've not seen many T12s actually have that in there. So when you're looking at a T12 and you see that it's zero, don't just assume that you're going to be doing zero as well. Make sure you input that into your underwriting. And even if you're not really doing apartment syndications, you should be doing the same thing for any deals. For example, for my four units, I wish I would have had an upfront operating account fund. And I guess if you're not doing renovations like I was, then it can be like a flat number just based off of your experience, or it can be a percentage of the purchase price, like one to 3% of the purchase price. Because I guess if you're not doing renovations, I don't want you to think, oh, I don't need one. Because that's when you probably need one the most. So I wish I would have had an operating account fund for my smaller fourplexes because of all the boiler issues I talked about. And I thought I'd known up front to have 10 grand set aside for unexpected maintenance issues, then I would have 
had that in my underwriting. And then I would have been like, all right, well, now these are their turn. I'm going to get in this property instead of being surprised by it. So on the smaller end, it's more of a surprise. On the bigger end, you might have to actually do a capital call, which you don't want to do. Nailed it. Yep. Completely agree. And, and as I mentioned, when I asked the question, I'm assuming that they're asking this question because they want to know where all the ways to mitigate the chance of a capital call. So reserves is obviously one of those. And then if someone asks you what are other things you're doing to mitigate chances of a capital call, what would you say? Other ways to lower the chance of a capital call or mitigate the risk. And by the way, we have never done a capital call. Well, that goes into the three immutable laws of real estate investing. Is that what you're referring to, Theo? Yeah. Okay, got it. Smooth segue, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so basically the question is, I never hear it phrased that way. I hear it phrased, we're likely going to have a recession or some sort of correction. What are you all going to do to mitigate the risk from this investment? Because that is likely coming. And I agree, there is a likely correction coming. And I do not think it will be anywhere close to 2008, but that's speculation. So let's just stop speculating. Let's talk about how we're structuring these deals so that we are mitigating the risk and setting ourselves up to be successful regardless of Mm -hmm. what the economy sends our way. And before you answer the question, this is actually another question I had on the list today. So we're moving on to the next question that Joe's going to answer. What is, what type of plan do you have in place for the investment if we happen to go into another recession? Yep. So the three things that we do, and by the way, you can search three immutable laws of real estate investing, Joe Fairless, and you'll get the blog post that we have on our blog. And you'll be able to read all that. The three things are one that we don't buy for appreciation, we buy for cash flow. And when 2008 hit, we saw people lose money or lose property. And the reason why is one of these three reasons. One is they bought for appreciation, not cash flow. Because when you are cash flowing on a property and the economy goes in the tank and you are now underwater on your property, well, who cares if you're making money every month? does not matter what the paper value is. It matters what the cash flow is because it's probable. I'm not going to say likely, but it's probable that the value will go right back to where it used to be or very close to where it used to be eventually. Who knows when, but eventually. Mm -hmm. But if you're cash flowing along the way, then it's not mission critical because you got money. So one, all of our properties that we buy cash flow from day one, And should a correction take place or when it does, we will stop the renovations on those properties or slow them down depending on what makes the most sense. And we'll simply sit tight. We won't cash flow as much as we'd like, but we'll still cash flow assuming there aren't many other variables in play. Two is that we are buying the property and when we buy the property, we put the right financing on it. We put long-term debt on our properties. Now, there could be an exception where we do a bridge loan, but if we do a bridge loan, we're going to make sure that we have it for three years with at least a couple one-year extensions included. And we're going to do something with that loan within 36 months, within those first three years. And if we do have a bridge loan, and regardless of if it's a bridge loan or agency that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, 
if it's a floating loan, then we'll buy a cap on that. That way we know what our worst case scenario is from an interest rate standpoint. Mm -hmm. And we'll underwrite to that with a sensitivity analysis and see what that looks like. Usually we have Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac debt on our properties, but sometimes properties just don't qualify for it because they are needing more of a repositioning than others. They still cash flow, but they need more of a repositioning than others. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we need to do that repositioning and then we'll get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac agency debt, which is more secure, more conservative debt, in my opinion, than bridge loans. And then lastly, you already touched on this earlier, we have an adequate operating account with our property. So we'll make sure we have the adequate cash reserves in our property. You already touched on exactly what we look at and how we approach that. So no need to go into it. So those three things, one, buy for cash flow, two, conservative long-term debt. That way we're not forced to do something whenever the correction takes place. We can just sit on it. The problem is when we're forced to do something at a bad time, then the music stops and we're screwed. Whereas if we can just continue to hold on to the property, ride out the storm, that's where the real estate investors who are in this for the long run and have long-term success thrive. We're actually going to buy a whole lot more during the downturn. And I'm looking forward to a correction because then there won't be as much competition from people from other groups who are currently competing with us because maybe they have bridge loans that aren't able to be extended or maybe they're buying massively distressed properties and they're not cash flowing. So they're going to be in a cash crunch. I don't wish this upon anyone, but it's the reality. It's going to happen. Yeah. You have less competition, but you also have potentially more supply opportunities because of people that didn't follow the three laws prior to the downturn, they're going to have to do something with their properties. Yep. On a kind of similar note, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because it's still fresh in my mind. You wrote a blog post yesterday entitled How to Become an Award-Winning Five-Star Apartment Syndicator. And it was based off an interview we did. And it's talking about all the different ways that you can basically create and foster a community at your apartment. And I'm not saying this is an extra rule or anything like that, but when I was listening to it, I wanted to move into this guy's apartment community because of all the events and just the different things that he was doing to get the residents engaged. And as a result, he's got basically a five-star rating and a really, really high, like upper 90% occupancy rate. So if you read that blog post and pull a couple of his ideas from there and implement those at your property and you create a foster community with, with the residents, like they're not going to want to leave. And you're going to attract more people. And that's something that could help in the sense that people aren't going to leave if the downturn happens. You already have a really high occupancy rate. So a dip in occupancy for you is not going to affect you as much as it affects someone else. But also you're going to have the go-to apartment community in the local market that people are going to want to live in. And that has to have benefits if the market takes a turn over other apartment communities that are not necessarily doing that at all because of the extra marketing costs. Mm -hmm. I just want to just just mention that that blog post that we had yesterday. Again, that's how to become an award-winning five-star apartment syndicator. And check that out and look at some of those strategies. I 100% plan on implementing that whenever I buy my first apartment community because I went to their Facebook and I was looking at the videos that they had and they had a bunch of people turn out for those things. Mm -hmm. Only good things can come from creating a sense of community. 
instead of waiting until you buy a larger apartment community, why don't you implement something to a lesser degree with your 12 units? Yeah, because they are all on the same block. Like they're all right next to each other. Like a cookout outside a barbecue and have some sort of raffle. Especially since I just raised the rents. I can afford it now. <laughs> I haven't had any yeah. maintenance issues for a while. Yeah, that's something I'm going to have a conversation with my property manager about set, doing something small once we get all the new people in there so everyone can meet each other. Because, yeah, I mean, if you know your neighbor, you're also not going to want to leave either because unless right. they leave too, you know. There's so many benefits of doing that that aren't necessarily – you're not going to see it affect your bottom line on the P&L, but it's definitely there. It's definitely happening. A couple thoughts. One is that some pessimistic or more practical – Best ever listeners are thinking, but what if all of your residents get together and then they start talking about what their rent is Mm -hmm. and how there's a discrepancy in the rents? And that's possible because you've mentioned on the show that there's, based on when they rented and all that other stuff, some pay more, some pay less. So that's a reality that will likely take place in some form or fashion. But all roads lead back to the value that you're providing for their living experience. And if you're providing value and if you're competitive with the market, then okay, that's just based on when they signed the lease or whatever else, however you position it. That's one thing. And then the reason why I commented why wait is it reminds me of when Jim Rome talked about how he recommends donating 10% of your profits to charity and People are like, you know what? Yeah, whenever I make a million bucks, I definitely will. And he says, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure if if you wait when you're making a million, if you'll then choose to donate $100,000. It's much easier when you're making $100,000 to donate ten dollars or $5,000, whatever it is. And then start conditioning yourself and your business and your mind to mm-hmm. incorporate that into what you're doing. And then as you grow you'll be able to implement it on a larger scale. But also, if it is true, which I believe that growing a sense of community within our apartment communities is a great way to increase profitability and make it a better living experience, then it's possible that by doing it on your smaller 12 units, it will help you get to the larger one faster. Yeah, good point. And if you're implementing that, the thing about it said, if you start implementing that strategy on your earlier deals, it'll be easier to do it on the bigger deals instead of saying, I'm going to wait until I get my big deal to do it. Kind of like, I'm going to wait for my million dollars to donate my $100,000. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. So we had a lot of questions. We got a couple added bonus questions in there too. So that wraps up this section of questions that past investors are going to ask you before investing in your deals and how to answer them. And again, these questions are also listed on the Passive Investing site, besteverpassiveinvestor.com. And we will come back with part three. Uh, either, part three, huh? Rock yeah, and roll. Three. Yeah. Next week. Maybe we'll start doing three questions just because we're, we have a lot to say about these questions. I think five <laughs> might be too many. <laughs> so uh, do you have any business updates or observation from the past week, Joe? So I'm starting to do some shorter episodes based on just things I've learned that I'm coming across that particular day. So I have a computer in my home office where I do all these podcast interviews and it's a more formalized setup and I have a separate laptop that I do all my work on and stuff. Well, I'm usually on my other laptop, my other work on and stuff laptop. And 
because of that, when I come across things that I'm like, oh, that'd be a good podcast episode or I should mention that, I don't do it. I haven't done a good job of documenting it and then transferring it over and sitting down and recording. So instead, I now have a separate microphone, a separate cord that goes into my laptop I'm usually on and I'm able to just record something for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, eight minutes, whatever it is, whatever mm-hmm. makes sense for it. And we're going to start having some of those episodes sprinkled into the show. I've done one of them already, and it's something called How Overachievers Can Get the Most Out of a Blah Day, like a, just a day where you film blah. And one thing that I've learned from that exercise, in addition to coaching call I had with my business slash life coach, Trevor McGregor, is I put together a list of 2008 second half things I will celebrate on December 31st, 2018. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to help rejuvenate me because I needed a little bit of a kickstart because I was just kind of in a funk. Mm -hmm. Thus the whole episode on how to overcome blah days for overachievers. And I'm mentioning it because it will be helpful for any best ever listener who is needing a kickstart for in the middle or any part of the year. So if you're listening to this episode and it's not in the middle exactly of the year, then who cares, right? Just do for, this is my three-fourths plan, or this is my plan for the last quarter of the year. You, Mm -hmm. You get the point. But I separated it into seven categories. And those categories, real quick, relationships, career, finances, health, spirituality, philanthropy, and volunteering. So those are the seven categories I have. And I have different outcomes for each of those seven categories that I will celebrate by the end of the year because I will have accomplished these things. Mm -hmm. So relationships, it's magical moments with Colleen and continue to help my family and friends reach their goals, continue building relationships with investors and clients. Some of these aren't quantifiable, so it will be more subjective on if I achieve them or not. But at minimum, it's a reminder to myself. I'm posting it up on my wall to focus on these things. I didn't tell you all the relationship stuff. Some of it's kind of personal. Career things, author of the best apartment syndication book ever. That will be published. Some other things that I'm doing for my career. Finances, specific quantifiable goals for finances, health, same thing, spirituality. So philanthropy, how much money I want to give away this year to causes. So it's fun to do that. It's a Kickstarter, but also at the bottom of those seven categories, I have, why do I want these things? And I talk about providing safety and security for my family and for other people's families, i.e. my clients and my investors. And then what do I need to do to achieve these goals? Who do I need to show up as? Mm -hmm. And I have a vision, daily consistent action, and keep building a network of loyal friends by helping them out. And I know by doing those things, I will achieve much larger goals. So having this document is helpful for me. And I mention it because perhaps it could be helpful for any best ever listener who needs a bit of a jump start to the middle of the year or after the first quarter, whenever you need that jump start. You put on there like something that you're going to specifically do at the end of December or the beginning of the year to celebrate or no, or I sh- no. That's a great addition. I did not put that, but that, that's a good one. I like, like, like maybe give yourself a knife civilization or something. <laughs> <laughs> and for best ever listeners, 
I do play one video game and it's called Civilization. They don't make it anymore. It's on PlayStation 3 and it's like your civilization and you conquer the world. I actually found it on PlayStation. I was playing with my buddies and we we're scrolling through uh, the library and we found that Civilization game. I'm like, guys, we're not playing this. <laughs> Can't do Edu- it. <laughs> educational and addicting, yes. Awesome. Any such great advice. I'm going to do that as well. This is the last quarter issue, I guess, to a third of the year. Mm-hmm. I guess a good strategy. And then. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what my reward will be. I'll figure out something. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you're going to give yourself a good one, though. I'm not sure what I'll give myself, but yeah. it'll be good. Do you anything else going on? No, I think that's it. Awesome. So just to wrap up, we're going back to having a blog post on the question of the week. We paused that. I was out of the country for a few weeks. But make sure you guys go to bestevercommunity.com. That's our Facebook community where we have a bunch of active real estate professionals who are asking questions, posting content. And then we post questions each week as well. We also do like shout out Saturdays where you can go on there and essentially plug anything that you want to plug, your business, your podcast, whatever. But uh, we're starting to do question of the weeks again, where we ask the question, you guys respond and we write a blog post on it, including your name. And this week's question is, after you became interested in real estate, how long until you closed on your first deal? So the idea of the question is to not just give us a number, but also tell a story as to why it took as long as it did or as short as it did. So for example, when I first heard about real estate investing, I reached out to an agent that next day and had a property under contract within three or four days after. And of course, it was a good thing in a sense that it got me into investing, but it was a bad thing in the sense that it was a struggle <laughs> at first. So that's how you should, you should approach asking the question. Don't just say 12 months or three days, but kind of tell the story behind it as well. And so that's bestevercommunity.com. And then lastly, guys and girls, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. It helps us out a lot to know what we're doing well and what we need to improve upon. And it also helps more people leave reviews when they see the reviews on there and brings more people to listen to the podcast so we can add more value. But this week's is from Eurythmetic, I think is what it is. And they said, awesome insights from investing experts. And their review is, just discovered this podcast and already highly recommend it. It's like having direct access to successful investing experts. Joe asks all the right questions to get the most useful, eye-opening insights. I listen during my commute to work. And it's like carpooling with the best minds in the business who just share their wisdom and learning for the whole trip. Please keep it coming so I can learn everything I need to quit my job. All right. I will keep it coming. And I appreciate those compliments and we'll just keep making it happen. And for any best ever listeners who have yet to do a review, please do a review that will help us continue to keep it coming and get high quality guests to the show, which will help you do better deals and make more money. So thanks again for hanging out with us. Thanks Theo for hanging out with me. And thanks to Grant for doing the social media stuff while we're on this, having our conversation and the whole team. So thank you. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling. We do one a month. Then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, 
then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Want to build wealth through real estate but tired of dealing with tenants, termites, and toilets? Check out the Note Investing Academy. They'll teach you how to invest in the mortgage instead of the property. With all the cash flow or appreciation you want and investing as actively or passively as you'd like. Use the code FAIRLESS at noteinvestingacademy.com for $500 off enrollment.